0: Right now, my listeners can give armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. I hope you all enjoyed the holidays. I enjoyed them a little too much, and you can probably hear it in my voice. My apologies for the additional raspiness. My voice just does not hold up well after social gatherings. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish Podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. With a kiss and a wave, Ashley Ellerin bid farewell to her father as he disappeared into the bustling departures terminal at Los Angeles International Airport in February of 2001. The tinge of sadness in her heart was quickly eclipsed by a flutter of butterflies as she steered her car into the onslaught of afternoon L.A. traffic. That evening, the eye-catching 22-year-old fashion student had plans with a handsome young Hollywood actor. Although she dated other actors before, Ashley harbored a secret hope that this particular encounter might amount to more than her usual fling. Forget dinner and a movie. For their first official date, the pair were headed to a Grammy Awards after party at a popular nightclub on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. The actor's name? Ashton Kutcher. A rising star but not yet Hollywood royalty, Kutcher, then 23, pulled up to Ashley's rented bungalow behind Grauman's Chinese Theater around 10.45 p.m. on February 21, 2001, nearly three hours behind schedule. He approached the yellow cottage and knocked on its heavy wooden door. When his date didn't appear, Ashton knocked again and again, still nothing. A call to Ashley's phone went to voicemail. He tried the door handle, but found it locked. Guessing she might be punishing him for being so late, the former Calvin Klein model peered through the window, just to the left of the front door. The lights were on, but there was no sign of Ashley, only what he believed to be the remnants of a spilt glass of red wine from a party she'd hosted the night before. Only later would Ashton learn The red streak wasn't wine, it was Ashley Ellerin's blood. Confused and disappointed, Kutcher retreated to his car and headed out under the glow of the Hollywood sign. Not long before Ashton arrived to pick up his date, a serial killer, later dubbed the Hollywood Ripper, had also arrived at Ashley's home. Little did Ashton know, he'd been cast in a role He never expected nor wanted an eyewitness to murder. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I examine the February 2001 murder of Ashley Ellerin. Ashley Ellerin could be defined by a single word, captivating. Born July 16, 1978, in Los Altos, California, an affluent Silicon Valley suburb, Ashley spent part of her youth in Peapack, New Jersey, after the Village Voice hired her father, Michael Ellerin, to head up its classifieds department. The family, including Ashley's mother, Cynthia, and younger brother, Seth, relocated back to the Bay Area in the mid-90s after Michael left his job. Raised by two successful and caring parents, Cynthia worked in the surgical pathology department at Stanford University. Ashley Ellerin had an idyllic upbringing. She competed in swimming and water polo and created paintings and pottery. She even dabbled in writing. Ashley's mother said she was so smart. She had a wonderful way about her. She just amazed me all the time. I learned so much from her. On top of her many talents, Ashley had another attribute that was hard to miss, beauty. Childhood friend Carolyn Murnick said Ashley loved being in front of a camera as far back as grade school. Mernick wrote in her 2017 memoir, The Hot One, I had a cheap autofocus point and shoot. And when Ashley would sleep over, we'd often go through two rolls of film in a weekend. With her dark, glossy hair and stunning chocolate brown eyes, Ashley remained effortlessly photogenic, right up through her senior year at Los Altos High School. Mernick wrote about Ashley. Teenage boys didn't seem to know what to make of her. She attracted plenty of attention from the older ones, the younger ones, and all the ones in between. Yet instead of pursuing a modeling career, Ashley held a different ambition to empower others to discover and express their own beauty. Her Los Angeles adventure began in 1997 as a student at UCLA, where she was accepted to the school's renowned fine arts program. She transferred a short while later to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising to make ends meet The brunette turned blonde juggled a daytime job doing makeup sales with evening classes downtown. One day, Ashley caught the eye of a club promoter who convinced her she could make more stripping than pushing lipstick and eyeliner. Ashley kept her day job but began moonlighting as an exotic dancer in both Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Before long, The aspiring fashion designer was exchanging phone numbers with entertainment industry elites and attending lavish soirees at opulent estates in the Hollywood Hills. In her memoir, Carolyn says that Ashley dabbled in crystal meth and was involved with older men who were helping pay her bills, allegations her family has denied. What isn't in question, Ashley had a thing for actors and they had a thing back. By the time she landed a date with Ashton Kutcher in early 2001, the Northern California native had already been out with Fast and Furious star Vin Diesel and Jeremy Sisto of Law and Order fame, who reportedly was so smitten with Ashley, he flew her to a film set in Toronto. All in their 20s, Ashley and her roommates were living the quintessential L.A. lifestyle, Christine Pelisek wrote for LA Weekly, this group of beautiful young people were the hills before anyone invented the hills for reality TV. They were naive, living a life that college-age kids in Midwestern towns could only dream about. Sunset Boulevard, studio parties, clubs. Sadly, Ashley's promising young life was about to be cut short by a monster lurking in plain sight. It was shortly after 9 a.m. on February 22, 2001, when Ashley's new roommate, Jennifer DeSisto, returned to their shared bungalow at 1911 Pinehurst Road in Hollywood. Located just off bustling Franklin Avenue, the home was set back from the main road and enclosed by an imposing wrought iron fence, which may have given its inhabitants a false sense of safety. DeSisto, like Kutcher, had been at the residence the previous night trying to get in. She left her keys in her boyfriend's car and hoped another roommate might open the door. When no one responded to her 10.15 p.m. knocking, DeSisto went to her boyfriend's house for the night. Upon stepping through the front door the next morning, DeSisto's gaze instantly glimpsed a horrifying scene at the end of the hallway, Ashley's lifeless body sprawled face-up in the bathroom doorway, her form drenched in crimson. Shocked and frightened, Sisto ran out of the house and into her car before calling 911. In minutes, forensic investigators swarmed the once-peaceful condo, snapping pictures and collecting evidence. The victim wore a turquoise terrycloth robe, blue tank top, and silk boxer shorts. The raised lines of a floral tattoo bracelet on her ankle, etched like a forgotten dream, barely emerged from the chilling canvas of blood. Pelisek wrote in her 2010 article, amidst the carnage, it was clear she had been preparing for her evening out with Kutcher. Her curling iron was found nearby. Her blow dryer was on the toilet seat. For LAPD homicide detective Tom Small, one of the first officers to arrive, the harrowing scene is forever seared in his memory. A beautiful young woman in the prime of her life, sprawled lifelessly, drenched from head to toe in blood. Small reflected back on that day, saying, I still smell it. The whole crime scene is vivid in my head. An autopsy back at the LAPD crime lab painted a grim tale. The 5'3", 120-pound Ashley had been the victim of 47 stab wounds, 12 of which would have been fatal on their own. Her hands and forearms were riddled with deep defensive cuts, proof the one-time high school athlete had not gone easily. When she learned about the death of her only daughter, Cynthia Ellerin said, I fell to my knees on the floor and started crawling around the bedroom, on my hands and knees like an animal, screaming. I ache for her. I ache to hold her. I ache to hear her voice, to hug her. But that's not going to happen. Despite the absence of a murder weapon at the scene, the nature of the victim's injuries left no doubt. The perpetrator employed a large knife and did so mercilessly. The attack had all the telltale signs of a crime of passion, only the killer had been meticulous about not leaving a trace. Investigators' best piece of evidence? Bloody shoe prints on the living room carpet. With no shortage of potential suspects, Detective Small faced a daunting task in narrowing down leads. As for Kutcher the actor didn't wait for the police to make contact. He phoned in the next day after learning of the murder from a friend. At least that's what he told authorities. Just this year, one of the accusers in the Danny Masterson rape trial went on social media to suggest that Kutcher saw Ashley's dead body and phoned Masterson before calling police to devise a plan. Actress Christine Bixler said she overheard the February 21, 2001 phone call between Ashton Kutcher and Danny Masterson, which she claims Masterson put on speaker. Masterson, who was convicted of sexual assault and sentenced to 30 years to life in prison, was Kutcher's co-star on the hit TV series That 70s Show. The two were close friends at the time of Ashley's death. Bixler said on social media, Dear Ashton, I know the secrets your role model keeps for you, ones that would end you. I heard the plan. In my opinion, you're just as sick as your mentor. Given Bixler's statement, some have wondered whether the Church of Scientology, of which Masterson is a member, blackmailed Kutcher into sending a letter to the judge requesting leniency For his former co-star. In the letter, Kutcher calls Danny Masterson a role model and mentor. Although Bixler's allegations have called into question Kutcher's actions the night Ashley Ellerin was murdered, her claims have not been verified or substantiated by anyone else. Did you know an estimated 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year? And most of those bottles are filled with water that makes them really heavy to ship, which leads to excessive carbon emissions. Blueland is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean that you're used to. Blueland offers refillable cleaning products so you don't need to waste unnecessary plastic each time you repurchase cleaning supplies. When I got my Blueland cleaning products, I was really impressed by the beautiful cohesive design that looks great sitting on my countertop. All I have to do is fill the Blueland reusable bottles with water, add the tablets, and watch them dissolve. No need to lug around hefty cleaning supplies during grocery trips. Refills start at a mere $2.25. You can also opt for a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaners and laundry tablets, all Blueland products are crafted with wholesome ingredients ensuring a guilt-free experience. Blueland has gained trust in over 1 million households, including mine. Besides the clean ingredients, my favorite thing about Blueland is the ease and convenience of the entire process. Getting products shipped to my doorstep allows me to avoid carrying heavy bags from the grocery store. And whenever I need a refill, it's cheaper than my old products. Blueland has a special offer for listeners. Right now, get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com murderish. You won't want to miss this. blueland.com murderish for 15% off. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. Ashton Kutcher would later testify in court that he called police on February 22nd because he wanted to tell investigators what he'd seen and to explain why his fingerprints would be found on Ashley's front door handle. In their only interview done in 2004, the Ellerins told In Touch magazine they wished Kutcher had tried harder to check if she was home to give police a better chance of catching her killer. The family also said the actor never reached out to them to offer condolences after Ashley's death. Michael Ellerin said, it would have been nice if he had contacted us or sent flowers, but that is a small issue. Police never considered Kutcher a suspect. He wasn't her only love interest. According to Detective Small, she had tons of boyfriends. In fact, Ashley allegedly enjoyed an early evening romp with her attractive landlord in the hours before she was to meet Kutcher. According to media reports, she'd called Mark Durbin, who had a bit part in the hit show, Frasier, to repair a light fixture Durbin testified in June of 2010 that he stopped by around 7 p.m. and the two had sex. Emerging from the ashes of a toxic relationship with an acting coach, Ashley found freedom in the vast dating landscape of Los Angeles, casting her net wide in search of a new connection. Both Ashley and Kutcher had been seeing other people when they were first introduced at a party in late 2000 but when they ran into each other again at a housewarming gig in January of 2001, they were both single and made plans to grab dinner and drinks. According to testimony Kutcher would later give at trial, the original plan was for him to pick her up at 8 o'clock, but the star of that 70s show took a detour to watch the Grammys with a friend. He called Ashley at about 7.30 to tell her he'd be late, then again around 8.20 to keep her posted of his whereabouts. Ashley called back from her roommate's phone, saying the house line wasn't working. It was 8.24 p.m. She told him she wasn't worried about his lateness. She'd gotten out of the shower and was drying her hair. Based on the interviews Kutcher gave police, detectives were able to put Ashley's time of death sometime between 8.45 and 10 p.m., only moments before Kutcher arrived and saw the pool of blood through the window that he mistook for red wine. Detective Small's investigation soon produced the name of a man who stood out among the throngs of young people Ashley and her friends interacted with on a daily basis. That name, Michael Garjulo. Glenview, Illinois is an upscale suburb situated on the edge of the Chicago Loop, the Windy City's central business district. Settled in the 1830s by pioneers from New England and New York, Glenview is today a thriving community, known for its excellent schools, parks, and recreation facilities. Ashley's friend Carolyn Mernick describes the town as straight out of a John Hughes film. But when Michael Gargiulo was growing up there, It was also the scene of a murder. Gargiulo lived only a block from where police discovered Glenbrook South High School senior, Trisha Picaccio, stabbed to death on her porch in August of 1993. The 18-year-old with a scholarship to study engineering at Purdue University had just returned from a scavenger hunt with friends before setting off for college. Her murder horrified the quiet, low-crime community. Homicide investigators questioned Garjulo about the crime. Just 17 years old, he already had a reputation around town as a hothead. According to Scott Olson, who played in a band with Garjulo, this guy would go from normal to crazy in like a second if he had something he wanted to do and something got in his way he would go completely nuts. The switch would flip and he would just become almost inhuman. Confronted with stories about his dark, explosive temper, Gargiulo didn't fold. He denied having anything to do with killing Trisha, and police lacked additional evidence to make an arrest. The case then went cold, ice cold. L.A. Weekly wrote, The only clue to the killer's identity lay in blood and skin fragments found on Trisha Picaccio's fingernails, but that evidence would not prove helpful for another decade. In 1998, Gargiulo followed his older brother Ken to Los Angeles in hopes of becoming an actor. His girlfriend arrived soon after. The trio found a tiny apartment on Orchard Avenue, not far from Ashley Ellerin's bungalow. The three of them lived what L.A. Weekly described as the Midwestern kid's dream. The younger Gargiulo scored a job as a doorman at the famed Rainbow Bar and Grill on the Sunset Strip, an opportunity he squandered by punching a customer in the face. Former colleagues Timur Leary and Anthony DiLorenzo told CBS's 48 Hours the Chicago transplant took pleasure in dispensing pain. Leary said about Gargiulo, he was a tough guy, absolutely. He had some good punches in him. Unable to make it work as a bouncer, Mike Gargiulo caught on with a Hollywood-based air conditioning repair company. The job wasn't glamorous, but it paid the bills. Plus, it gave the young Chicago native what he wanted, access to L.A.'s rich and famous. In between repair jobs, Garjulu auditioned for various acting roles, even landing a part in a short independent film titled Boxing's Been Good to Me. The olive-skinned, dark-haired Italian played Carlos, an aspiring boxer. His acting was awkward at best. Carolyn Murnick said she forced herself to watch the 15-minute film. It was shot in late 2000, just months before Ashley Ellerin's murder. Ashley's childhood friend wrote, 24-year-old Garjulo was tall and muscular, his upper body covered in menacing tattoos, a rabid-looking dog on his left forearm, a skull on his right shoulder, the Chinese word for champion, across his back. Even as he tried to earn an honest living, Garjulo maintained a criminal mindset. Garjulo's one-time friend, Marco Hoffman, said to 48 Hours, He would go online and see whatever he could find about forensics. He would learn about how to get away with a crime. After two years in Hollywood, Gargiulo grew tired of his Midwest girlfriend. According to reporting in LA Weekly, he began dating a McDonald's cashier, Velma Carrillo, whom he met in an AOL chat room. He told Carrillo one of his many phony personal histories, bragging that he'd studied forensics and came to California to train as an Olympic boxer. On one occasion, Gargiulo brought up murder victim Trisha Boccaccio, allegedly telling Carrillo he knew the identity of the killer. He also mentioned that his DNA would be present at the scene because he'd visited her home to hang out with her brother, a close friend. Detective Small said... I was always amazed that he was really free with that, reciting almost the same thing to people. I don't know if he was trying to create a rise in people or scare them. Ashley Ellerin's ill-fated introduction to Garjulo came in November of 2000, not long before she'd met Kutcher at that housewarming party. She and a male friend were outside the bungalow, calling AAA to fix a flat tire when a man appeared out of nowhere offering to help. He handed them a business card. It read, Mike Gargiulo, HVAC Services. According to LA Weekly, Gargiulo did little to hide his interest in Ashley. After that first encounter, he began stopping by her house, offering to do odd jobs and suggesting they hang out. From the very beginning, Ashley's friends and roommate verbalized their displeasure with this new hanger-on. To put it bluntly, he scared them. They were right to be fearful. When Ashley's male roommate, Justin Peterson, confronted Gargiulo about lurking around the bungalow, the repairman insisted he was laying low, spinning up a tale about being wanted for a murder in Chicago, one he did not commit. Peterson shared this bizarre interaction with Ashley, but nobody called the police to report it. Ashley and her roommates suffered from a certain naivete that comes along with living in a land of make-believe. Rather than take Garjulo at his word, Ashley and her friends attributed his behavior to being another Hollywood crazy. According to LA Weekly, they never felt themselves in danger, but they were wrong. It's no secret that I love a little luxury in my life, but if I can get it at a good price, that's the icing on the cake. Quince is my go-to for luxury essentials at affordable prices. They offer a range of high-quality items at prices that are within reach, like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters from $50, washable silk tops and dresses, organic cotton sweaters, and 14-karat gold jewelry. The best part? Every Quince item is priced between 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. And for those of you with inquisitive minds, like me, who wonder how Quince can pull off these prices, well, they eliminate middleman costs, extending the savings to consumers through direct partnerships with leading factories. Additionally, Quince exclusively collaborates with factories committed to safe ethical and responsible manufacturing practices, utilizing premium fabrics and finishes. In 2023, I started building my capsule wardrobe, which is basically a collection of clothing and accessories that can all mix and match to make several different high and low outfits. These are usually timeless pieces like a leather jacket or denim jeans. My Quince Mongolian Cashmere Midi skirt has become a staple in my capsule wardrobe. And if you've been looking for quality pieces for your capsule wardrobe, I recommend checking out Quince. Give yourself the luxury you deserve with Quince. Go to quince.com murderish for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quinc slash murderish to get free shipping, and 365-day returns, quince.com slash murderish. In the weeks after Ashley Ellerin's February 2001 murder, Detective Small and his partner at the LAPD's Hollywood Division heard the name Mike surface repeatedly during interviews. While Ashley's friends described the man's appearance and physique, none of them could provide a last name. Mike the Furnace Man is the best they could offer. Nearly two years passed without an arrest. The young woman's family and loved ones were in disbelief. Then, one day in late 2002, Small's partner received a call from Detective Lou Sala with the Cook County Sheriff's Office in Illinois. The cold case investigator was in the process of obtaining DNA from everyone police interviewed in connection to the murder of Trisha Boccaccio nine years earlier. Sala said he was looking for a man believed to be living in Hollywood. His name? Mike Gargiulo. The title and description set off alarm bells for Detective Small, who immediately told Sala about his unsolved case. The similarities were striking. Two victims both young women, both killed brutally with a knife at their homes. Deciding it best to work together, the two teams of detectives tracked down Gargiulo in West LA, where he was living with a new girlfriend. They asked him to provide a sample of his blood for DNA testing, but Gargiulo refused. Authorities took it anyway. In September of 2003, a full 10 months later, A state crime lab in Illinois matched the DNA found on the fingernails of Trisha Boccaccio to that of 26-year-old Mike Gargiulo. Police had their man, or at least they thought they did. Inexplicably, Cook County prosecutors declined to file charges, telling the Boccaccio family they simply did not have enough evidence. Gargiulo's DNA, they said, could have ended up on their daughter innocently. It alone did not prove murder. Word of the Illinois DA's unwillingness to act shocked Detective Small. What's worse, it tied his hands. He couldn't arrest Mike Gargiulo for Ashley's murder because the LAPD did not have DNA from the crime scene to test against the sample collected from Gargiulo. Cook County's failure to prosecute Gargiulo led to unthinkable consequences. Two years later, in 2005, Gargiulo murdered 32-year-old Maria Bruno, a dashing mother of four living in El Monte, California. Authorities called to the scene found the El Salvadoran immigrant on the floor of her apartment with her throat slashed, her breasts mutilated, and her two implants removed. In 2008, Garjulo struck again, attacking a woman in an apartment in Santa Monica. Only she was able to break free. Michelle Murphy said she woke up in the middle of the night to the unthinkable, a man on top of her wielding a knife. Despite being stabbed 17 times, the 5 foot 1 inch Murphy managed to fight off her attacker who fled the scene in a hoodie and baseball cap. Only this time, Garjulo did not make a clean break. In the heat of the struggle with Murphy, he'd cut himself, leaking blood onto the apartment floor. Police used that blood to test for DNA, and this time, it didn't take 10 months to get the results. According to LA Weekly, Santa Monica Police Department Sergeant Rich Lewis hit pay dirt a month later. Santa Monica Police Department arrested Mike Garjulo on June 6 of 2008 on suspicion of attempted murder. Charges of murder in the deaths of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno would follow. Once police came forward with the extent of Garjulo’s killing spree, papers were quick to dub him the Hollywood Ripper. Ashley Ellerin’s family hated the name. All they wanted was justice for their loved one. They'd have to wait much longer than expected to get it. It took the state of California nearly 11 years to bring Mike Gargiulo to trial. Soon after being put behind bars, Gargiulo demonstrated signs of mental illness. Attorneys used his condition to argue that the former bouncer was unfit to face charges, triggering a legal battle that exhausted precious time and resources. Garjulo finally went before a jury in the summer of 2019 in a downtown Los Angeles courtroom. Largely because of Ashton Kutcher's involvement, the proceedings sparked national attention. The defense team tried to pin Ashley's death on Mark Durbin, the landlord who said he had sex with the 22-year-old just hours before her scheduled date with Kutcher. Their motive? Jealousy. According to the Associated Press, defense attorneys and a psychologist said in court that Gargiulo has dissociative personality disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. Gargiulo's attorneys contended that it was other men who committed the murders of Bruno and Ellerin. They conceded their client had attacked Murphy, but said he was in a fugue state because of his personality disorder and didn't know where he was at the time. Prosecutors presented in disturbing detail how Gargiulo didn't only want to kill his female targets, he wanted them to suffer. They called him the boy-next-door killer because he lived so close to all his victims, stalking each woman gave Gargiulo a sexual thrill, they said. The 12-person jury deliberated for over three days before reaching a verdict on August 15, 2019, four months after the start of the trial. The jury found Michael Gargiulo guilty of murder in the deaths of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno and attempted murder in the attack on Michelle Murphy. During the penalty phase, Gargiulo's 16-year-old son took the stand, asking the jury for mercy. But it wasn't enough. A Los Angeles jury recommended death by lethal injection. Gargiulo showed no emotion when the jury's decision was read aloud in court in October of 2019. Defense attorney Daniel Nardani called the punishment senseless. According to the AP, Nardani said, you don't kill people who are mentally ill. It's just a matter of humanity. There's a different kind of punishment for the mentally ill. It's called life without parole. Procedural matters and a pandemic meant it would be another two and a half years before a magistrate would hand down a sentence. Victims' family members wept as Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Larry P. Fidler ordered 45-year-old Michael Thomas Gargiulo to pay the ultimate price for the deaths of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno. According to the AP, Fiddler said, everywhere that Mr. Gargiulo went, death and destruction followed him. Ashley's father, Michael, was one of several victims' relatives who spoke at the July 2021 hearing. According to the AP, Michael Ellerin said he was tempted to imitate his wife's mournful scream and primal wailing after finding out that Ashley had been murdered. The still grieving father said, It marked the beginning of an altered, diminished, heartbreaking life. Arguably, the most powerful testimony came from the woman whose heroic actions brought Garjulo's reign of murder and mayhem to an end. Survivor Michelle Murphy said, "'To this day, spending the night alone "'creates a world of fear in me.'" According to the Associated Press, Murphy cried as she talked about meeting the families of the two women who did not survive their attacks, asking, "'How is it fair that one person's actions "'can destroy the lives of so many?' Garjulo, wearing orange jail attire and a blue face mask, also spoke at the hearing, complaining that his attorneys had not allowed him to take the stand in his own defense at trial years earlier. The convicted killer said, I'm going to death row wrongfully and unjustfully. I did want to testify, and my fundamental choice was blocked. Despite the judge's order, it's unlikely Gargiulo will ever be put to death. The state of California has not executed anyone since 2006, and Governor Gavin Newsom has put a moratorium on executions for as long as he's in office. Courts have been proceeding on the assumption that capital punishment may one day resume. Newsom's final term ends in 2026. Unlike Ashley Ellerin's parents, justice remains elusive for Rick and Diane Boccaccio It was Rick who found his daughter's blood-soaked body on the front porch as he went to take the family dog for a walk the next morning. Diane blacked out and had to be taken to the hospital. 30 years removed from Trisha Piccaccio's brutal murder, no one has ever been convicted of the crime. Diane told Chicago Magazine, when the California detectives called, and told us Mike had been arrested, I can't even tell you what a load was lifted. We just want the same justice for our daughter. It remains unclear when that will happen. News outlets reported in 2021 that authorities expected Garjulo to be extradited to Illinois to face first-degree murder charges. After failing to act on the DNA match in 2003, The Cook County DA's office finally brought a case against Mike Gargiulo in 2011, after two witnesses came forward saying that he'd confessed to them about the crime. As of winter 2023, Gargiulo remains in a California prison. Little has been said about when he might be taken to Chicago to stand trial. It's worth noting, Illinois does not have the death penalty the Piccaccios remain incredulous about local prosecutors' unwillingness to file charges when a test confirmed that DNA found under Trisha's fingernails belonged to Mike Gargiulo, a classmate and friend of her brother. Diane said, I was so insulted. I don't know how they want to twist and turn it, but they know his DNA shouldn't have been on her. It's even more upsetting when they think about Maria Bruno, the beautiful brown-haired Mama four who was brutally murdered by Gargiulo two years later in 2005. According to Detective Small, these other girls wouldn't be dead. Plain and simple, they wouldn't be dead. Local law enforcement has apologized for their inaction in Trisha Picaccio's case. John Reed, one of the Cook County detectives, said to Chicago Magazine, I can't put a happy face on this, because we dropped the ball. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. As for Ashley Ellerin's family, they've remained out of the public spotlight. She would have been 44 years old this summer. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish, Share your thoughts about this case with me on Instagram or TikTok. I'm at Jamie on air on both platforms. That's J-A-M-I on air. I hope you'll join me at a live meetup on February 24th, 2024, that I'm co-hosting with my good friends, Aaron and Justin, hosts of the Generation Y podcast. The free meetup is taking place in North Hollywood at the Idle Hour Bar on Saturday, February 24th, 2024. Aaron, Justin, and I will be there for a casual hangout with friends and fans of our podcasts. Mark your calendars for February 24, 2024, and join us in Los Angeles for a casual and fun evening. For more details about the event, just go to murderish.com or go to my Instagram at Jamie on air. I hope to see you guys there. If you enjoy Murderish, do me the biggest favor and leave a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Let me ask you something. Are you like me and you're out there watching all the true crime documentaries that exist, and you want a community of like-minded people to talk about them with? You can join the true crime TV club I started. We call ourselves the Serial Streamers, and we meet in my Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube comments a couple times a month, to dish about all the crazy true crime docs that we're watching together. If you want to join Serial Streamers, all you have to do is follow me on Instagram, TikTok or YouTube at Jamie On Air. That's J A M I On Air and watch for videos about the latest TV series we're watching together so you can join us in the comments and share your thoughts. That's Jamie On Air on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube. If you want ad-free episodes of Murderish Sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon, or just go to Murderish.com, and then you can start enjoying ad-free episodes right away. This episode was researched and written by Kay Brand. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.